Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to GOLA. I'm Katie Parla, a Rome-based food and beverage writer, culinary guide, and cookbook author. And I'm Danielle Caligari, assistant professor of Italian at Dartmouth College and a certified specialist of wine. Hey. <laughs> hey, Katie. What's going on? I cannot believe that you're greeting me with that much enthusiasm when you know what we're going to talk about today. No, I'm really stoked on it. What are you talking about? <laughs> I think you uh, must have read my messages incorrectly because we are doing an episode dedicated to your mortal enemy. Oh, shit. This is the Florence episode. <laughs> That's exactly right. We have been adding episodes that act as sort of mini city guides for our Golosi who have been asking for some more general, broad approaches to how people eat in certain cities and their mini sub-regional gastronomic cultures. And I think we managed to go through some of your favorites, so it was time for one of mine. Yeah, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what I'm going to contribute to this, honestly. I, I do. I'm, that's not true. I have, I have some questions. I just don't have anything <laughs> to add. You have nothing nice to say, so you won't say anything at all? Yeah, okay. that's how, you know, that's how I operate. Yeah, right. <laughs> Take out your Mr. Potato angry eyes and just relax. I will guide us through our eating and drinking in Florence episode. Okay, where should, where do we start? Well, maybe let's hear about your Florence experience because you're the, mm-hmm. you're the, you're the one that chose that city. <laughs> what you're actually saying between the lines is, please make me understand why you went to that garbage dump in the middle of the country rather than one of the finer cities of especially the South, but even potentially the North, anything but that one. Share your affinity for this landlocked wasteland. <laughs> All right. Well, I came to Florence the way most people do, which is as a student on a study abroad semester and then went back later to do my master's and then a couple of years of my PhD between Florence and and Pisa also at that point. But Oh, I like Pisa. Yes, I know. See, there's something there besides, and, and not just because of that wonderful leaning tower. There are a few things happening in Tuscany besides Florence, and I highly recommend everyone get into them. Indeed, anywhere besides Florence in Tuscany is worth a visit while you're there. But I also ended up having a relationship with Florence because I was interested in, as you know, the pre-modern era in Italy and how people came to become Italian, right? So this journey towards a cultural identity because Italy doesn't become a country until 1861. And while there is a sort of common language for 
a good amount of the last centuries and there is a sort of common faith identity and other things that bring them together, there's a real chance here if we kind of don't use our 2020 vision from 2022. Oh, my brain. That, uh, that, that Italy doesn't come together in this way, right? And Florence is a place of great interest for anyone who's uh, looking at the Italian peninsula uh, from the opposite direction, because Florence is a city that becomes culturally, politically, and economically hugely important in the late Middle Ages, just when places that we think of as sort of quintessentially Italian are losing their traction, like Rome. Like Rome, yeah. Exactly. No, it was it was uh, going through some rough times in the <laughs> Uh, 14th century in particular. <laughs> not not a great time to be Roman, unfortunately. <laughs> so that doesn't necessarily pave the way for Florentine uh, economic stability and primacy. But what we do have is a city of Florence or more... What's the, what would you call it? That like a republic at that point, or what? Well, so Florence it, it goes through a few different stages at that point. Um, yeah, it's republic for a little bit. Um, it's uh, eventually rolls into becoming a duchy and then a grand duchy. Uh, it is that's tight. <laughs> yeah. Um, what makes Florence important at that time, and this again will quick be a, a quick way for people to understand why I get so interested in it. Uh, is that it becomes one of the first city-states in the central Italian communes, and that's what they're usually referred to at this time more generally, which is to say basically auto-ruled cities uh, in, in some form, and some they, they all have a slightly different uh, trajectory, is, uh, is that Florence successfully manages to provision itself. So food is actually the reason why Florence becomes an, a successful urban center. Uh, It's a very hard moment as we move from the, and, you know, all this stuff is, we're using some generalizations here because I'll start with saying the fall of the Roman Empire. But of course, you know, we know that the Eastern Roman Empire stays in, in place for a while. And also it's kind of a process. It's not just a couple of days and et cetera, et cetera. But from the time that the Roman Empire begins to decline and then crumble and the the Italian, the kingdom of Italy will uh, be built, uh, brought together in the 19th century. There's a kind of straight line towards the places that manage to bring food to their people after Rome is no longer in place and doesn't have that infrastructure uh, ready to go. One of the things, and I'm sure we've talked about this in many episodes, that made the Roman Empire so successful was that it had a really rich breadbasket in the form of the south of Italy, of, the, of what is today the south of Italy and North Africa. And it had an infrastructure in place to move that wheat to people and guarantee that they had bread and then wine as well. So when you say that Florence was able to provision itself, it's the lands, I imagine, in close proximity that are agricultural. And at that time, is it for both like domesticated animals and wild game and produce? When do beans come into the equation? Everything you're talking about. So first of all, there's the contado, is what is the kind of countryside around the city, and that produces for the city. So we have a couple of things happening. One is that 
uh, over the high into late Middle Ages, people start moving from the countryside into the city. And that's true across uh, a lot of the peninsula. And that means we have two problems that emerge because one is that we have urban density, so more people that need more food. And we have rural evacuation, which means less people to produce the raw materials that can feed that city. So some places manage better than others. Florence does a few things right. They manage to create relationships with other places that can reinforce what their contado can produce, so trade, essentially. They manage to bring a good amount of food into the city, and they manage to diversify the products that are available, as you uh, point out. So that includes animal husbandry, all different kinds of crops, and uh, but and most especially, again, the presence of wheat for bread. And that's uh, both for the uh, kind of you know, cornerstone of the Italian diet at that time, or the the peninsular diet, we could say, but also because of a symbolic value. People feel confident in the presence of a food source when they could see that grain for bread was in their city. And in fact, if you go to Florence, or if you've been to Florence, you may have seen Or San Michele, which is a, a, a church now, that uh, is also functioning as a museum, but that was originally built as a grain store, a place where in the dead center of the city, people could see the presence of grain and know that they were taken care of. I like that. (laughs) Yes, it's very comforting. It remains comforting. Yeah. So what are the dishes that people are consuming in this, like towards the end of the Middle Ages, beginning of the Renaissance? And <laughs> so that's in the case of Florence, that's a good place to start actually to arrive at the contemporary diet and how people eat and uh, how and what they eat, um, as we've done for other cities now, because Florence has a, a a diet that really kind of hews closely still to the products that were available then and uh, how they were prepared. So what does that mean? Well, Well, using bread in a lot of things and especially in uh, these kinds of bread soups that you'll still see on Florentine menus, the papa al pomodoro, ribolita, which is, of course, just a reboiled a million vegetables filled with bread. Papa al pomodoro is just um, bread covered in tomato. So a, you know, a a post uh, relationship with the Western Hemisphere situation, but using the same style. A lot of legumes, so tons of beans, as you point out, heavy on chestnuts and chestnut flour that comes from the forests around around the city of Florence, especially to the west in the Garfagnana, and a large presence of uh, really just anything that can be foraged as opposed to uh, many of the kinds of items that we'll see elsewhere in Italy that I think people are more likely to associate with the Italian diet broadly. I mean, Florentine cuisine really has almost no representation in Italian-American cuisine. And as a result of that, it's surprisingly foreign even today. Yeah, I think you'll find Ribolita maybe on some pan-Italian-American menus. But I noticed you didn't say that that uh, in the Renaissance, people were eating heaps of uh, imported Spanish beef <laughs> passed off as local. Yeah, so Bisteca Fiorentina and 
actually things like fresh pasta, which have also, I think, become strongly associated with uh, dining in Florence today. Pappardelle. Exactly, yeah. And then, of course, um, wild boar, uh, which is often stewed both as a, a kind of main dish or as a condimento for pasta, wouldn't have been in a pre-modern or even early modern Florentine diet. They are introduced later and they have a lot to do with this bizarre kind of history of Florence that makes it an anchor, first of all, in the Grand Tour and also a an, kind of an ongoing point of reference for expats. So the presence of non-Italians in Florence has a strong influence on the diet for sure. So I'm I'm thinking of British nobles swooping in. Yes. And they're like, give us a steak. <laughs> and Florentines are like, we eat beans. Yeah. We have a, we, we could do like a bean stew. <laughs> right. What if we did not steak? <laughs> what if, what if we had um, liver? <laughs> and they're like, no. And I'm not going to do the accent because that's not cool. <laughs> Give us a big steak. And then every place in Florence over the course of the past century advertised a big, big ass steak. Yeah. That's, unfortunately, that is sort of, unfortunately, that's, that's a little bit more accurate than I would like it to be. Yeah. Um, you know, mine is the Victorian street urchin accent. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I would say that. That's an important point to make up front because it does strongly influence the way people eat in the city today. And this hard line that comes down between the local population and non-local population. Florence is a much smaller city than Rome in a lot of ways. It's literally smaller geographically. It is demographically much smaller. It's only about 300,000 people included within the, even if you kind of that's three centocelles. Right, exactly. That's the yeah. that's also the population of Molise. Right. It's a it's a small it's a small city now. Um and you know the reason why we start with the uh, medieval Florence uh, another or I should say another reason to start with medieval Florence when you're thinking about its enogastronomic culture is that at that time it was a city of about 100,000 people, and it was a vibrant, changing, international, cosmopolitan city. As Florence has come into the 20th and 21st century, that's moved towards being a smaller city that's a little more provincial, even as it has a lot of internationals coming through it, it doesn't have quite the same dynamic force. And it just hasn't really been as friendly, I think, to innovation as opposed to a more kind of traditional and stoic view of what you can give to tourists and what they want. And as a result of that, the dining culture in Florence remains really divided between a an experience that is clearly laid out for tourists and uh, and or students who international students. Uh, again, because of uh, strongly because of anglophone presence, but not only, and uh, an experience that is more for locals and. Those two realities don't really meet all that much, at least not in the urban core of the city. So when you're conjuring the like the tourist and student and sort of anglophone scenarios, I'm thinking of, you know, a trattoria that might have all the like wine flasks hanging from the ceiling that's serving big old hunks of 
salami to the table with a big knife stuck in it. Yeah. Uh, piles of pecorino and lots of lots of steak, sort of passing itself off as as an authentic uh, spot. But what's what's like a local place? And if you feel comfortable sharing some names, I do. I'm I, not going to go to any of them. I, but I feel comfortable. I know that our, if I would dare to suggest I know, you go somewhere. I know that I'm in the minority when it comes to never ever going back to Florence. But you know, our listeners are keen. Well, there are, there, are, there are a couple of things that recommend Florence. And the first one is that being a small city, you can traverse it quite easily. So um, all the beautiful, famous things about Florence are quickly accessible on foot. You can enjoy the different neighborhoods in the course of a day, really, at least to get a feel for different possibilities there. And you can have a variety of experiences. The the distinctions that we're talking about between local and non are interesting also because they kind of end up operating on three levels, even though I've just described two. So that is to say, there's this kind of first um, uh, first step that is very, very lowest common denominator kind of uh, food or drinking establishment. It's open all day so that anyone coming through town, often on a tour bus or um, as part of a large group visiting, can eat whenever is convenient, whenever fits into this, the, these kind of over-programmed and over-structured uh, schedules that they'll have. Yes, this is a, a like a checkered tablecloth spot that's doing bolognese and right. bistecca la Fiorentina and carbonara but probably all from the microwave. Right, exactly. And so those places become, those places get really blurry because as you point out, they'll have some of the things that have become known as Florentine. Some of those do have real roots in the past. Others don't or that, or they have very much shorter histories than apparent than would be apparent. Then they're also adding a number of dishes that just come from other Italian regions and or a series of dishes that are just things tourists ask for that may have no real relationship to the Italian diet, past or present. Then there's another level, which is for people who are interested in eating food that is actually representative of the region or the subregion. And there are a series of very fine restaurants, and I'm using fine in the American English way, and which is or the colloquial like, way. It's fine. Basically, not a, a notch above mediocre. Um, they're uh, providing a, a very nice experience, no doubt, and using good ingredients, but not doing anything interesting and still kind of really towing a line to make sure that uh, anyone who comes through can be happy. Um, those places might reflect a more traditional central Italian structure of the day as well in term and and meal in terms of the way they present food, which is to say they'll be open for lunch from 1230 or 1245 to about 230, close between lunch and dinner service, reopen for dinner at 7, close by 10 or 1030. They'll have a menu that presents antipasti that are of the region usually affettati, so meats like prosciutto toscano and finocchiona, which is a delicious Florentine or greater Tuscan style salami with fennel seed introduced. I don't care for it. Uh, <laughs> no, JK, I like it. It's, there's no way you don't like it. I like it. it. Yeah, it's like, 
Are you happy? Uh, I like it. Okay. Between um, that and Orsan Michele, I'm liking yeah. things left and right over here. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, they'll have primi, like the bread soups and bean soups that are absolutely historic. I and, like those. Yeah, really substantial and also sustainable kinds of food that are brought from uh, using vegetables that are in season uh, and preserved things that last a long time. And some of those legumes are coming to Italy from the east and yes. some are coming from the west. Yes, like some are, absolutely. Some are coming like cannellini beans and stuff like that is from the Americas. Yeah, so there's a mix. There, right, there's a really wide mixture. Beans, though, I think are a fair representation of the region because they grow well there. They're stored at length there. They are a, a staple of the diet from certainly as far back as the high Renaissance and even often before that. Mm. You have... Uh, following that, you'll have uh, long stewed meats, uh, both pork and beef, which are, again, to some extent representative, depending on the style, More sometimes more than others. The would-be classic pepozo, for example, is, I think, a via di mezzo when you think about that. Um, the idea of cooking meat, the offcuts of uh, a better, a finer, finer filet for a long time, and adding any kind of spice that you might get to make it more exciting in its iteration makes sense. The actual presentation of the dish is much more recent, of course. So you have a little bit of that accompanied by traditional wines. And we'll get to that later because that's going to take a minute. And I know I'm going to have to probably tie you down and cover your mouth with duct tape before I talk about oh Chianti. <laughs> so. Okay, look, I like some Chianti there are many there are many wines. examples that we both like and yeah. there are many that we don't. So then we have then there's an, another level which is a, a kind of an a an evolving space right now. Um there's lots of money in Florence and so there's a lot of fine dining and there is also uh, a decent amount recently of newly returned young people who have gone other places, and then come back to Florence with that knowledge and brought that to their uh, attempts at creating a, a dining experience that's more exciting. And uh, some of those places are really successful. And because Florence has such a large international population, they can take that risk in the way that maybe another city of the same size in the center north of Italy really wouldn't permit. And that gives rise to some places that are uh, not quite edgy, I wouldn't say, but that are more flexible, more interesting, and uh, bringing a, a new option to people there. And that tends to be the kind of place where certainly younger people, but even some older people who still inhabit the city center, are more inclined to go to because they are places that feel of the moment and more attached to the community. Can we get some names? So I would say uh, when we look at what's going on in Florence right now in terms of where I would sit down and eat, I am still a fan of some of, of some places that have very long histories, but that have been themselves innovative. I think the Cipreo group remains really excellent. I would happily recommend going to the, I would say, the cafe, which is the kind of mid-tier option that they uh, have in their group right now, although there's a new, there's a brand new location at the um, Helvetia Bristol that just opened in uh, the the, center, the dead center of the historic center. 
Um, they also have an Asian fusion uh, side sister restaurant called Chibleo. That's, I know, I oh, have a God. problem with it, but that's what their Asian chef chose. Get so I, out of here right this minute. Um, it's really, it's quite good. I, people are allowed to make that choice for themselves, I suppose. Sure. So. I uh, I really enjoy um, a restaurant called Il Guscio, which is in San Frediano. And it's, again, a great example of a place that it's run by people who have been in hospitality for a long time in Florence. It's a place that has dishes that are representative of the region and of the city, but also brings in and isn't afraid to experiment with other ingredients and other preparations. And also unusually has a significant amount of fish on the menu, drawing from the coastal areas of Tuscany, even as many really traditional Florentine restaurants stick with the kind of absolute bare bones iterations of uh, of fish centered menu items like uh, potatoes and octopus and bacala in some form. I also think that right now in Florence, you can enjoy a lot of interesting wine that isn't Chianti. And so that's a place where I would, or that's an area where I would uh, suggest exploration. So, okay, let's get into that. Florence, in some ways, is... Chianti, by the way, is not the Tuscan wine that I hate the most. What's your top one? Super Tuscans. Oh, fair. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay. Sorry, Super Tuscana. Super Tuscana. JK, no one says it like that because no Italians drink that shit. (laughs) It's almost none. It's true. (laughs) Uh, Well, especially because the price points are totally inaccessible to actual Italians. Yeah, maybe also manufactured for not Italians. Yeah. Um, I'm so sorry for people that love that stuff, but... (laughs) I apologize. Well, it's just the the point of that project was to make wine in Italy that doesn't taste like Italian wine. That was quite literally the point when the when the Marchese Antinori went to try to make try to create Tignanello. The the idea was how can we make a wine in Italy that does not read Italian to especially people who give scores for wine mm. more than anything else. And they they were quite clear that that was their intention. And to be fair, Nailed it. to be fair, although I do not have sympathy for those projects in particular, I understand why someone making wine, making fine wine wanted to attract the attention of the people who judge fine wine and suggest it to the audience who would mm. eventually purchase it. I mean, that that makes sense. It's not um, what I would be giving my energy toward. Yeah. However, mean, it's, you know, that that is their project. So. No, totally. I mean, also like the collateral damage to other the the rest of the yeah. the central italian wine industry that was sort of following in that uh that trend but not maybe not like the high end level but stripping out indigenous vines and replacing with cabernet sauvignon and merlot and all that junk yeah. is like a direct uh consequence unquestionably unquestionably okay so what to do about Tuscan wine. Let's let's also walk back to where we started because this is another reason why I ended up in Florence and spending time there. Because if you like wine in Italy and if you like the connection between wine place and identi- among wine place and identity, you are going to end up spending some time in 
Tuscany in the late Middle Ages because it is a moment in which people begin to understand the potential for value, economic, social, cultural, and otherwise, in making strong, making strong, clear, articulated relationships between a very a wine that is produced and the place in which it is produced, how it's done, what grapes are used, what regional delineations there are, what aging techniques, and what audiences think of it. And that starts already in the 1300s in and around Florence and, and beyond within Tuscany. Well, we all know that because we read the Divine Comedy. And- <laughs> We want that sweet, sweet, delicious vernacha. <laughs> exactly. So we mentioned this in episode in which you let me talk for like an hour about Dante, and I think probably everyone skipped it. But if you're into that, you can go back into our uh, past episodes of this season and hear some more about what I've been working on. And in fact, everything we're talking about today is also what influenced and is informed by the book that I have coming out now, Dante's Gluttons. The uh, late Middle Ages is a moment in which we we see that emerging. And already in the mid-14th century, people are understanding that Chianti, this region, which is a place first and foremost, right? It's known, you know, we when we hear the word Chianti, we think wine. But when someone from the area, here's the word Chianti, they think of an area on a map. Yes. Right. And a lot of the villages have the name Chianti. Absolutely. Right. So they're closely uh, identifying with the word as well as the kind of hyperspace. So they're That area is producing a kind of wine, and people are appreciating it because it does certain things. Whether or not you like those things, either then or now, by the way, the ability to identify those properties, to kind of isolate them, and to recreate them in the same way so that an audience can continue to return to them, makes that wine a successful product. And the people making wine in Tuscany already in the late Middle Ages managed to do that. We also have the process by which uh, a whole kind of new reputation for that wine emerges in the 20th century, which is wildly different from anything that came before that. As you mentioned, Katie, in the late 70s into the early 80s, a series of very large producers who had a ton of capital already because they had a longstanding and a problematic relationship with the with the land in and around the city of Florence they take that privilege and they use it to invest in other spaces in Tuscany and to bring in international varietals that create a new style of wine known as super tuscan and bringing with that a an international attention to the region and a very, very significant increase in the prices people are willing to pay for Tuscan wines in general. Your problem with it, well, you can, why don't you tell everyone what your problem with that is? I won't put words in your mouth. (laughs) Well, how many minutes is this episode allowed to be? (laughs) There's no real rule. No, I mean, you know, you know me, I don't have a super high tolerance for people for dishonest people. And my interaction with some of the producers has demonstrated a, a 
an utter lack of, of respect for labor, for agriculture, for the land. And so that's one that's one issue. I mean, I also think just and, you know, this is like this is me being like a jerk from New Jersey, like the fact that a subzone of a subzone has this outsized impact on agriculture and commerce all over Italy is just like it's so crazy to me. And it is detrimental to people who are doing really incredible, excellent work in a way that is respectful to the land and is expressive of grapes in the land. Um, and so the the success of the Super Tuscan category, the fact that it has ironically become emblematic of Italian wine in spite of the fact that it was manufactured specifically to not demonstrate the place that it comes from, just a big old bummer. It's a bummer that people who work really, really hard don't have the same access uh, to capital and don't have the economic benefits um, that others doing less interesting work have. Um, and on the, you know, on the Chianti note, the expansion of that zone and the sort of dilution of the identity of Chianti is not a unique story. It's not just in Tuscany that this happens. We we talked uh, in a previous episode uh, about Suave, and there are freaking fantastic Suaves out there. There are freaking fantastic Chiantis out there, but the fact that some producers in the 70s and 80s sought, you know, to make maximum bank means that those really awesome producers are downright shunned by some importers and distributors or just don't have a place in the marketplace because of, you know, their colleagues practicing, you know, really awful winemaking techniques. Yeah, I I mean, that's absolutely fair. And I think you're... The point about distancing the wine from the place is where I start to get my uh, temper up as well because I'm my whole point, and I, we departed from the fact that Chianti in particular, but also Vino Nobile di Montepulciano, Brunello di Montalcino, the the fine wines that people are aware of from Tuscany were known because they had this incredibly close relationship with the space. They were considered to be truly evocative and interesting and only able to be produced and, and known for the fact that they were only able to be produced there. And they were using grapes that were indigenous to the region. Wines that are now associated with Tuscany, as you point out, are ironically very un-Tuscan in many ways, if not always, uh, in fact, purposely in, in always. The large-scale, you know, industrial agriculture and labor, labor practices remain a huge problem as well, obviously. We've talked about that in a series of other episodes, and we'll always be coming back to that. Um, so I won't dig into it other than to say that, uh, as you point out, there are other realities. There are other producers who are still making wine in a way that is careful and uh, and and traditional in the best sense of the word, as in uh, using what's available without intervening unnecessarily. And that is... And also not just focusing on viticulture, but, right. mm-hmm. you know, creating an agricultural space um, that mirrors the way that things were in the past, a, a mixture of forest and uh, vines and fruit orchards, right. um, which is actually beneficial to... 
to the to the biodiversity of the area. Yes, absolutely. And the there so I can if since we're naming names, I will tell you I think that um Istine is doing a great job of that. I think um, the women at uh, Pudere Sanguinetto are doing a great so job good. of that. Fantastic wine, great prices, um, and not actually exceedingly small productions either in either of those cases. I mean, they're certainly not huge, but you can, yeah, you find, can find these them. wines. You can find these wines. Uh, there are another uh, relatively large scale, but doing things in a really conscientious way is Salchetto. Mm. Um these are just quick ones that are jumping to mind as I'm uh, thinking about what uh, you can find on a shelf at any decently well curated wine shop. These aren't these aren't wines that are really wacky or funky or excessively natural. Put in scare quotes. Uh, they're wines that are that really feel Tuscan, that use the grapes of the region really in the way that they have always been used, almost without exception, and are simply trying to produce an honest wine. So um, that they're out there. And uh, despite the challenges that are presented by a market that has not valued them and by other producers who have at times very intently and at other times just uh, through kind of indifference tried to edge them out altogether. Mm. Yeah. That brings us to the question of how people drink in Florence. And, you know, we've kind of talked about the differences north to south and urban to rural and the ways that people have relationships with alcohol in Italy or how those longer traditions or uh lifestyles have influenced the way that they drink. And of course, Florence, once again, based on what we've already said, is going to respond to the international population that's there, to the fact that it is in the center of Italy. So it does fall somewhere in between the kind of harder drinking cultures of the north and the uh, lower alcohol diets of uh, the cities of the south. It is a place where because of the large student population, there are a lot of drinking establishments that really specifically adhere to or uh, uh, cater to the interests of young, of very young people. So uh, that means that places that have really inexpensive drinks that serve quantity over quality have been the rule rather than the exception. And uh, people have over, I would say, the last 10 to 20 years begun to find a foothold for something more than that. But it still remains a little bit challenging to really get an exciting or innovative drinking establishment off the ground there. That said, Florence has also been home to a huge boom in the craft cocktail culture. I mean, the Negroni was invented there. Exactly. So we have um, a longer history of relationships with cocktails, again, falling somewhere in between the Thanks, South and British North. and American tourists. <laughs> exactly. Um, we have the development of uh, a of a cocktail culture, especially recently, that's um, super interesting, mm. um, tends to be on the expensive side, so yep. not as friendly to uh, the wider audience, but uh, available nonetheless. It's like 25 30 bucks for a cocktail type of sitch? It can be. I would say that there are some places where you might do a little bit better than that and still drink well, around 15 So certainly, you know, big city prices, no question about that. Um, the very famous places, yeah, you're going to be paying 
you know, 20 to 30 euros for a drink, even sometimes something as simple as a spritz. Oh, my God, that's so much money for a spritz. I know. I know. There are, however, some good old wine bars in Florence still as well, which I can uh, certainly point to. One of my new favorites recently is called Vineria Sonora. They have a lovely and deep, deep cellar, actually, especially for such a small place and a relatively new one. And they range from uh, some really kind of friendly and easy to love, but uh, small production, low intervention wines to really wacky stuff that's super fun. I like um, that, too. Yeah, you would totally enjoy it there. They're also not at all condescending. They're really warm. I think it's a lovely place. And there are some classic places also that have been there for a long time. Le Volpi Eluva mm. has uh, been around for as long as I've been going to Florence, which is more than uh, 15 years now, or Jesus, maybe maybe 20. Um, I think, and, we're, in, I think yeah. we're in the second decade. Yeah, I'm rolling into that, I guess. <laughs> and that's a place where you uh, will still see selections being made super conscientiously, accompanied by really nice snacks without any pretension, really, uh, really kind of traditional establishment, though, as well, in terms of the way they present themselves and uh, the options that are available. So, you know, there it's there. I think, you know, this brings us to this place where we can wrap up our discussion of Florence and, and its eating and drinking culture by saying that it is a place that has many, many faces. And it's up to you to find more of them if you care to. And maybe you don't. Maybe you're Katie Parla and you're like, this city is not for me. And I don't want to have to do so much work to find one decent glass of wine for a normal price. That's totally fair. That's a great way to end this episode. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I wouldn't say that I'm totally convinced because I love every single other Italian city more. But I am tempted by some of the places that you've shared. And we keep threatening to do like a live episode in Florence. I don't know if anyone wants to listen to like a full nervous breakdown <laughs> on the air, but uh let's say that I'm in the I'm in the territory of not ruling it out. Okay. Okay. I'm gonna take that as a win for today and just Leave it at that. I look forward to someday in the future, Katie Parla coming with me to Florence and me having to fireman carry her back to our hotel so that <laughs> she can be reanimated. Deal. Perfecto. D'accordo. I'm better. Ciao. Ciao, ciao. We love our supporters. Thank you so much to our Giotti-level patrons like Allison and Gina Ruggiero of Fiorella in Rochester and Gabe Del Virginia of New York City. We also want to thank Anthony Lombardo at She-Wolf Detroit and Leah Ferrazzani at Semolina Pasta in Pasadena. 